In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So we've been studying the book of Nehemiah. Um, many of you here um, maybe have not been attending from the beginning. So if somebody would like to give kind of a summary um, of what we've talked about so far, maybe someone who's been attending almost every week, who knows, uh, what is it we've been talking about? In the microphone, please. Nehemiah. Who's Nehemiah? The cupbearer of King Artaxerxes of Persia. Okay, and then what did he what did he do? He went back to Judah. He went back to Judah to rebuild the walls. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Okay, and kind of uh, up until now, um, you know, he went back. He surveyed. Um, the wall, he organized the people into groups, he had them to complete the building of the wall. There was also some other problems that he faced as the wall was being built, including um, there was a famine, um, also there was the oppression of the poor by the rich people. Um, the rich people would like uh, loan money to the poor but with high interest and so they wouldn't be able to pay them back and he had to deal with that as well. Um, and so we see how Nehemiah dealt with all kinds of things. There was there was intimidation by enemies that were there as well that wanted to keep them from building the wall. So there's a lot of different factors that Nehemiah had to consider and had to deal with in the in the rebuilding. Not just the building of the wall itself, but the other problems with the people and the enemies. Um, and so we had spoken about some of those things um, last time. Okay, so in this in this chapter, um, the we 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 start the kind of like the, the, the reason why um, uh, the wall, the rebuilding of the wall was important. And, and that is because we wanted a place for the people of God to be able to worship God and to live, right? So the, the goal wasn't to just build a wall. The goal was to like rebuild the people, right? The rebuild the nation of Israel itself. Um, and part of that was the wall. So we see that, that we start to have a more of a focus now, a spiritual focus, um, rather than the focus on just the task of the wall building. Um, so it says, Then it was when the wall was built and I had hung the doors, when the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, that I gave th the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani, and Hananiah the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. Okay? Do you remember who Hanani is? We heard this name before. He was actually the person who came to Persia to tell Nehemiah that the walls of Jerusalem are in disrepair. He's the one who started all of this, actually. And here when he says it's his brother, it doesn't mean his blood brother, but just like one of his fellow countrymen. Um, so he's the one who kind of got Nehemiah's attention to this problem um, of rebuilding the wall. So he put um, uh, Hanani and Hananiah, another man, leader of the citadel, um, to be responsible for the city of Jerusalem. So Nehemiah chose people that he believed cared about the city. Obviously, Hannah and I cared about the city for him to travel all the way to Persia to tell Nehemiah that this was happening. Um, and Nehemiah was actually going to go back to Persia. Um, he was going to visit back again. He was going to come and make a second visit. Um, but, he but Nehemiah was going to return to Persia, and he wanted to make sure that everything in his absence was going to run uh, well, like one of the tenets of the leadership that we see here in Nehemiah is that the system runs well without him. Um, you know, sometimes people um, who are very talented people are able to have a system run 
because their presence is there. They're, they're, they're kind of required and necessary to be involved in every decision um, and everything that's, that's happening, everything that has to be done. It's running well because they are intelligent or they are capable, they are hardworking, and everything runs through them, and so everything seems to go well. But really the true measure of like the test of if a system is working well is if the person responsible can disappear and everything continues to run without them because they have competent people in place making decisions at all the different levels. So here he is placing um, you know, uh, competent people, faithful people in charge of the city um, because later on he is going to leave. And I said to them, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot and while they stand guard. Let them shut, the bar, shut and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. So for, for Nehemiah, again, building the wall was not enough. He didn't see himself as my job is to go build the wall and then I'm done. You know, sometimes we, ha we, we, we adopt this approach where like, I have a specific task that I'm supposed to do and I have like blinders on and I just do my task and as long as my task is completed then I feel like I'm successful and I can disappear, right? Nehemiah took a more like a holistic view of what he was there to do. Building the wall was part of what Nehemiah did and uh, of course maybe the most famous thing and one of the most important things but he wasn't there just to like do that one thing and leave. He wanted to, to leave the city to be like in a functional order, right? The entire city. And so he considered things about like how, how things should be run, right? How things should be run, how it should be governed. Um, it was custom uh, in Jerusalem uh, before that the gates of Jerusalem would be opened at sunrise. Um, and that way the traders and the people who are outside the city could come and set up all of their things so that when the people wake up, they can find all of the marketplaces are already open and everything is ready to go. Um, that's why the, the gates would be open very early. But now, why do you think Nehemiah is saying, do not open the gates until the sun is hot? So if the city is under attack, right, and the number of people in the city is very few, actually the city is very empty compared to you know the, the capacity of what the city can hold so if if they open the gates when everyone's still sleeping and there's already not very many people then it would be a good opportunity for the enemies to come and maybe try to invade the city so he said don't open the gates from the early morning but wait until everyone is ready in case something happens and then that way we can be prepared and and deflect any attack that might come now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were very were few, and the houses were not rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people, that they might be registered by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return and found written in it. Okay, so the city was made to hold about half of a million people, about 500,000 people. Um, and in the first return, so remember there are three returns. The first return was under Zerubbabel, the second return under Ezra, and the third return is this one now under Nehemiah. The first return, there was a group of about 50,000 people that returned with Zerubbabel, okay? So the city could hold a lot more people, right? And because he cared about the people, he wanted to make a, a, like a census to see who is all the people who are there in the city, right? And what is their genealogy so he's, he's very focused on that um, 
These are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon had carried away, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his city. So there's going to be now a long genealogy uh, with many, many names, and I'm going to try my best to read the names with, you know, pronouncing them right, and I'm sure I'm not going to. Um, if you read in Ezra chapter 2, Ezra chapter 2, there's also a genealogy, which again, Ezra is the second return, the second return from captivity to Judah. And at that time, he also made uh, a census, a genealogy. And you'll see that the genealogy uh, of Ezra and the genealogy of Nehemiah are very, very similar with some minor differences. And, and some of the differences are accounted by the numbers because the, the numbers, of course, this census, I think, were taken 16 years apart or something like that. Um, and so uh, they, the, the numbers of the people, of course, are not the same. Okay, but you'll see a lot of the same names, a lot of the same families, and so on of the people. Here in this genealogy that we're about to read, um, it's broken up into um, two different groups. At the beginning, there is the general common people, and you'll see a lot of their names. Um, of course, this is not the name of every single person, but just like the, f the heads of the families, um, along with the numbers of people in each family. Um, and then there'll be a list of the priests, the Levites, uh, the singers, the gatekeepers, and then finally the Nethanim. The Nethanim were like the helpers to the Levites who would be working um, in the temple. And as we always say, that one of the things that we get out of the, the, the genealogy is one, there is like a way to uh, corroborate um, the events that are written in the Bible by finding other sources that also maybe are mentioning some of these names. That's one benefit of the genealogy. But also it shows that God cares about each individual person by name, right? And he, he lists the names of the people in um, in in the scripture okay so the first from verse 6 to 25 it's speaking about the families okay the the general common people those who came with Zerubbabel were Jeshua Nehemiah Azariah Ramiah Nehemiah Mordecai Bilshan Mispareth Bigvai Nahum and Bana the number of the men of the people of Israel the sons of Parosh 2172 the sons of Shephatiah 372 the sons of Era 652, the sons of Pahath Moab, of the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818, the sons of Elam, 1,254, um, the sons of Zatu, 845, the sons of Zakai, 760, the sons of Binui, 648, the sons of Babai, 628, the sons of Asgad, 2,372, the sons of Adenakim, 667, the sons of Bigvai, 2067, the sons of Adon, 655, the sons of Atar of Hezekiah, 98, the sons of Hashum, 328, the sons of Bizai, 324, the sons of Herif, 112, the sons of Gibeon, 95. So those are like the common people, okay? Um, uh, then, then this is the list of the farmers. Okay, this is a group of people which are the farmers. The men of Bethlehem and Netophah, 188. The men of Anathoth, 128. The men of Beth Azmaveth, 42. The men of Kirjath Jiram, Chephira, and Biroth, 743. The men of Ramah and Geba, 621. The men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 123. The men of the other Nebo, 52. The uh, the sons of the other Elam, 100 and 
1,254, the sons of Haram, 320, the sons of Jericho, 345, the sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 721, the sons of Sena, 3,930, the priests, okay, so now this is the group of priests, the sons of uh, Jediah, of the house of Jeshua, 973, the sons of Immer, 1,052, the sons of Pashur, 1,247, the sons of Haram, 1,017, then the Levites, the sons of Jeshua, of Kadamil, of the sons of Hedova, 74, and then these are the singers or and the gatekeepers, like the workers of the temple. Um, the singers, the son of Asaph, 148, the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Ater, the sons of Talman, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatita, the sons of Shobai, 138. Uh, the Nethinim, which are the helpers of the Levites working in the temple. The sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Tabaoth, the sons of Kiros, the sons of Sia, the sons of Padon, the sons of Libana, the sons of Hagaba, the sons of Salmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Gahar, the sons of Ria, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda. The sons of Gazam, the sons of Uzzah, the son of Pesiah, the sons of Besai, the sons of Maunim, the sons of Nephishesim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harhur, the sons of Basileth, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tama, the sons of Neziah, the sons of Hatifa, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Sophereth, the sons of Perida, the sons of Jala, the sons of Darkan, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Shephathiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pokareth of Zebaim, the sons of Ammon. All the Nethanim and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. And these were the ones who came up from Telmela, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Emer, but they could not identify their father's house nor their lineage, whether they were of Israel the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, two hundred and uh, sorry, 642. So this group of people, actually, they didn't know who their lineage was. They didn't know who their family was. So they actually didn't know whether they were of the sons of Israel, right? But So there was some question as to their heritage, um, but there was that group of people as well that it's, that it's listing here. And of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Koz, the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife of the daughter of Barzillai the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy, but it was not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. And the governor said to them that they should not eat of the most holy thing till a priest could consult with the Urim and the Thummim. So these people who they thought that they were priests, but they could not find their name in the genealogy, so they could not find confirmation of their priesthood. So they were told that they could not be priests because only the sons of Aaron could be priests. And they said, what, not to touch the holy things, which are the holy things that only the priests could touch, and not to eat of the showbread or the, the other things, that the, like the sacrifices and so on, that only the priests could eat from, until what? The priest, till a priest could consult with the Urim and Thummim. What is the Urim and Thummim? Yes, there's two things that the priest would wear on his garment. One is called the Urim and the other is called the Thummim. And the way we understand that the way that they would work is it would be a means by which that the people could consult with God and get an answer um, as to questions that they had. 
almost like somehow God would indicate using one, like one or the other, almost like a yes or a no or some some way of communication where whenever they would want to to seek like uh, like from God, they would they would um, God would communicate to them through this. Okay, we don't have like a full details exactly on how it worked, um, but um, but they were used for communicating with God. Altogether, the whole assembly was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 245 men and women singers. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and donkeys 6,720. And some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work the governor gave to the treasury 100, sorry, 1,000 gold drachmas, 50 basins, and 530 priestly garments. Some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the treasury of the work 20,000 gold drachmas and 2,200 silver minas, and that which the rest of the people gave was 20,000 gold drachmas, 2,000 silver minas, and 67 priestly garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the Nethanim, and all Israel dwelt in their cities. When the seventh month, the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. So they completed this genealogy. Everyone knew where they were from, um, and they counted the people. So now, um, again, because this was like the re-beginning, again, the rebuilding of Israel, not just the physical buildings, the physical wall, but the people itself. So that's why they wanted to make an account of everybody who was there. So that is the end of chapter 7. Chapter 8, um, we now hear of Ezra. So remember, Ezra came before. Ezra uh, led the second return, okay, prior to this, the, to this return with Nehemiah. Uh, but he was still dwelling there in the city, okay? Um, and so Ezra now is going to, as the, as the scribe, he is going to take his role of reading the, the book of the law for the people. Um, there have been several times throughout history where for, for the reason of there being a, a long period of apostasy in Israel to where the people would completely not even know what the word of God was, right? And one of the famous ones is under King Josiah, who was a young king. Um, after um, many decades of living under the reign of a sinful king, um, Josiah came and wanting to do what is right, they discovered the word of God in the temple. Um, and they began to read it. And when they read it, they realized that they were not living according to what God had commanded them to do. They were not observing the feasts. They were not observing the sacrifices. They were not doing all the things God had commanded. And so they read the word of God to all of the people so that they could like revive um, the worship of God again in Israel. Um, so, of course, now uh, here in this place, uh, now that the walls had been rebuilt, and all of these people who are living here now, uh, many of them had been born in captivity in um, Babylon or in Persia, and now they are coming back. So most of them had no concept of what is it that they were called to do, all right? And so now that the, they, they had secured like the safety of the people, and the people could now dwell in Jerusalem again because they were secure from the, with the wall being built, so they are going to now focus their attention to the spiritual aspect of this book, which is the rebuilding of the people, the spiritual edification of the people, teaching the people the word of God and restarting the worship in the temple and all of that um, again. So it says, Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. 
So Ezra the priest brought the law before the, the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. So they, the Ezra is now going to read aloud um, uh, before the people the word of God, including all the commandments of God. Then he read it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Okay, so um, the, the people are all listening, right, to what the word of God is. And it kind of uh, the thought came to my mind is this is the purpose of the church, right? Like we build churches and we don't build churches just because they are beautiful to look at, right? We build churches so that people can come and find salvation in the church. Um, you know, in many places around the world, some of the most ancient churches, um, let's say in Europe, for instance, have become like museums. Like people go visit the church like, oh, this is the cathedral of this, the cathedral of that. Um, and people go and, wa and go, go visit it and go inside, right? But they don't go inside to pray. They go inside to just look. It's like, oh, this is a very beautiful building and look at the architecture and look at all of that, right? So here the focus of rebuilding Jerusalem is not to say, well, Jerusalem is just like a really great city and we want to build it and we want to, you know, for our heritage because you know, for political reasons, like this is our, this is our country, you know, this is, we have loyalty to our country, we want to build it again, we have, want to have a nation, like all those things might be true, that they want to have all of those things to have like a, like an independence for themselves and a place for them to live, right? But the, the real reason why they're doing that is because they wanted to have the place to worship God according to how God had asked them to do. So, um, so again, like Ezra had preceded Nehemiah by, by 13 years, but he was present here in the city, um, and uh, he, he, he still had his role. The other interesting thing here is that you're going to find cooperation between Ezra and Nehemiah, right? Like Nehemiah has his scope, his work that he's doing, and Ezra has his. Like Nehemiah is not a spiritual leader, right? He is more of like a governmental leader, whereas Ezra is more of the spiritual leader, right? So Ezra has his role of what he is doing, and Nehemiah has his role, and they're working together. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for the purpose and beside him at his right hand stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Urijah, Hilkiah, and Messiah and at his left hand Padiah, Mishael, uh, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Mushalam. Okay, so this is 13 priests that were standing with Ezra. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So the people, even though they, um, they didn't know the word, right, because this is maybe all new for them the first time that they hear this, but they had a reverence. Right. Like they understood what is it that they were coming to do, that that the word of God was something reverent, something important that that they wanted to know. Right. They wanted to understand the word of God. They wanted to worship God and they were attentive to whatever it is they were being told, because whatever it is they would be told, they would be uh, they would immediately put it into practice. And so sometimes you find in the church that there are some people who maybe they don't have a lot of knowledge. Maybe they don't under, you know, they don't have the, the, a lot of knowledge of the Bible. They don't have a lot of knowledge of like the church history or the rites of the church or different things in the tradition. But they are like sponges and they want to know. And the moment that they know something, they immediately begin to apply it in their lives with sincerity and like, 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 like zeal, right? 
But then you have another group of people. They're maybe the ones that already know many, many things because they've been in the church for a very long time. But their, you know, attitude toward things is maybe kind of like apathy. It's like, yeah, like, you know, we've attended many liturgies. I already have it memorized. I have the Igbeya memorized. I, I know all these things about the church fathers and the history and all of that. But they, they, they keep it not with zeal or with like a desire to apply it or to recognizing the preciousness of what they have. But it's become more just something common, right? This happens, for instance, like with deacons. So someone who is not a deacon, maybe they look at like the liturgy um, or what the deacons are doing. They look at it with reverence and they say, wow, look, this person is a deacon. And this person is learning hymns and chanting and leading the prayer in the church. And it's like a big deal. Right. Or maybe someone who becomes a deacon for the first time. Things like, wow, like for the first time I'm entering the sanctuary and I'm standing in the chorus of the deacons and I'm you know, doing this. And you feel like there's a kind of like a weight of of, of reverence and awe to the whole thing. But then after years, maybe, of being a deacon, okay, now entering the sanctuary is no big deal. Coming and staying in the chorus is no big deal. Um, the hymns, you know, I'm, you know, I know the hymns. And the things that we do start to become not really so much filled with reverence and prayer, but they're just kind of become a routine, right? And that, um, when, when that change begins to happen, and it's not just deacons, really anyone, right, um, can, can go through this, but... Um, that change that begins to happen is like we, we lose something. You know, we lose the, the reverence of what the church is because it's become so familiar, right? It's become so familiar that I'm not paying attention anymore to what it is that I'm saying or what is it that I'm doing or, or that there is, you know, the, the reverence that I should have because of the presence of God should be no different today than it was from the beginning. Um, and so he, we have to be careful because... We don't want that as we begin to grow in the church and grow in knowledge and understanding that, you know, there is a inverse relationship with our reverence. Like, okay, well our reverence begins to drop, drop, drop because everything becomes common now. Like, I don't, f I don't walk into the church with awe. I walk into it as like, yeah, this is the church I come to every week, every day, you know, and it's just kind of for me like nothing special. So here, these people, okay, um, even though they didn't have a lot of knowledge and they were going to hear something, you know, new, but they had this reverent spirit, right? And they, they, they kept saying, amen, amen, while lifting up their hands, bowing their heads, worshiping the Lord with their faces to the ground. Like it's a big, it's a, it's a big moment for them. You know, how many times do we like hear the word of God or like, okay, that's the word of God. You know, I have to stand up you know, like, 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 like without any real care. Right. Whereas for them, it's like they're hearing the word of God and they're just like they're bowing and they're they're, they're being very reverent in what they're doing. Um, also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodijah, uh, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah and the Levites. There's just so many names in these chapters. Um, Help the people to understand the law and the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book and the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. So in a sense, they like broke up into groups. Okay, so they broke up into smaller groups, and the priests and the Levites would go to each of these groups, and as the word of God was being read, they would try to help the people understand the significance and the meaning of what is it that was being, um, was being said. Okay, also some people say, that because the scripture was written in what language? 
Hebrew. Hebrew was a common language that people knew and understood prior to the captivity. But after the captivity, <coughs> having lived in, uh, in Persia and in Babylon and Persia, um, many people no longer knew Hebrew. And so they instead, they, the common language that was spoken was Aramaic. Okay? Um, and Aramaic has like, it's like a mix of like kind of like Hebrew roots and Arabic roots. Um, and, and so the Aramaic was the more common language that the people would understand. So many of the Jewish people didn't know Hebrew. So one of the things that it said that these, these Levites would do and these priests would do is they would hear the word in Hebrew and then they would translate it to Aramaic for the people to understand. Okay. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. So why do you think the people were weeping? And why did he tell them not to weep? They were exposed for the first time, maybe, maybe for the first time in their lives, to their own sins. Okay, so... So maybe they, they, they realize, which is actually what happened with Josiah at the time, right? Is when Josiah heard the word of God the first time, he tore his clothes, right? Because he realized that they were not at all doing what, what the word of God said. So maybe one of the reasons they're mourning and weeping is over their own sins, over their own deficiencies, over the, the way that the people had not been keeping um, the word of God from, for, for so long. So that's one reason to mourn and weep. Okay, what else? to the captivity and oh. they're back to the land okay yeah so it was like a big moment like they they realized that this is the reason that we were sent into exile so remember a lot of these people here they had never lived in jerusalem before and they had only heard about jerusalem as being like the city of god from their parents and they realized that the reason why they had gone into exile for to begin with is because their parents were not following and obeying like the word of god Right. So it was again like it was a very like powerful moment for them to be to be in the city. Right. Um, and 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 hearing the word of God. So why is it there the, that they were told what do not mourn nor weep for all the people wept when they heard the word of the law? Why is it they were told not to weep? Because we're always told that we should be weeping and mourning over our sins. Right. So why would they be told not to? This day is holy to the Lord. Okay, the day is holy to the Lord. So what does that mean? Kind of like in our church when it's like a feast day, we're not allowed to fast. Okay. Yeah, good. So, so of course, repentance is something we should have all the time, right? But there are certain days that, like, the focus is more on the rejoicing for what God has done, not on our own deficiencies, Right, because that's kind of like the balance. It's like a lot of times we're like focusing on our deficiencies, and when we focus on our deficiencies, we our conclusion is like we are mourning and weeping because of our sins, and we come to God in repentance and asking for forgiveness. But there are other days where our focus is not as much on this, but it's more on focusing on the joy of what God has done, which is to forgive. Right, that's why, like for instance, the resurrection comes after Holy Week. Right, Holy Week is a whole week of mourning, 
over our sins, over the fact that our sins caused Christ to have to be crucified, um, and the 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 the, t the tunes of all of the hymns are mournful, the most mournful in the entire year, right during Holy Week. But then immediately after Holy Week, there is then and and the fasting is also very strict and so on. And then immediately after that, in the Feast of the Resurrection, there is no more fasting. There's no more mourning. Um, all of, everything is changed to joy. All of the curtains are changed from black to to white. Um, the tunes of the hymns have all changed, right? And the focus at that point now is not our sinfulness, but the focus is on what God has done in order to forgive us and to bring us like salvation, right? So there's a season for everything, just like in Ecclesiastes when King Solomon says, like there's a time to weep and there's a time to laugh, right? So there's a, there's a time to focus on these different things. So definitely like the people were here mourning over their sins, but they wanted this day to be a time of rejoicing that God has allowed his people to return back to Israel and to, and to, and to restore the worship in Israel again, right? So this was like a very important uh, moment in their lives. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions of those to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Right, so it was a feast day. They were to go and eat like the, the, the tasty food, the fatty food, the sweet food, and at the same time to share with the poor people, those who didn't have the food for themselves, to share it with them so they could also celebrate. Okay, This was actually a custom that had been practiced um, from the Feast of Purim. The, the Feast of Purim was the feast that was um, established at the time of Esther whenever the all the people of god were um were spared they were allowed to defend themselves um in order to be spared from being killed by the plot of of haman um so they established this feast called purim which became something that was ex that was practiced every year to commemorate the salvation of the jews from from haman um and so at the at in this feast um, they would take the, you know, uh, they, they would give to the poor, whether it be money or food or whatever, they would give it to the poor um, at the same time as the feast. So here they're saying anyone who cannot celebrate the feast because they're too poor, they would, the, the rich would give it to them. So the Levites quieted all the people saying, be still for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. Now on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the peoples with the priests and Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees to make booths as it is written. Okay, what is the name of this feast? Feast of the Tabernacles. Feast of the Tabernacles. And the Tabernacles here means like the tents, the Feast of the Tents. And what does the tents represent? It represented to remember uh, the 40 years the 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 bringing out of slavery from Egypt and the, the the dwelling in the wilderness for 40 years where the Israelites dwelt in tents in the wilderness and how God was providing for them during that time so on the seventh month um, they would celebrate the feast of the tabernacles where they would make like little tents 
for themselves and no one would dwell for an entire week. No one would dwell in their own houses, but that they would dwell in these tents. And some people who had houses, they would make the, the tent or the booth um, above, like on the rooftop of the house. And other people would just spread out the, the, the tents wherever in the city um, because no one would go and live in their house during that time to, remi to remind themselves of when they were traveling through the wilderness and how God protected them. So this was called the Feast of the Tabernacles. Um, also, it was called um, the, the Feast of, of Booths. Then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house or in the courtyards or the courts of the house of God and in the open square of the water gate and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under their booths. For since the, the days of Joshua the son of Nun until that day, uh, the children of Israel had not done so, and there was very great gladness. So when it says here, so Joshua son of Nun, this was very, very early. This was um, uh, the time of when the Israelites entered into um, the promised land for the first time. But it's recorded that they actually did celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles um, at least two times. Once it was mentioned at the dedication of the temple by King Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8. It's mentioned that they, they practiced this feast at the time. They also practiced it again in Ezra chapter 3 when they returned from captivity. So here when it's saying um, that this feast had not been uh, since the days of Joshua the son of Nun until that day the children of Israel had not done so it's not saying that they had never celebrated the feast but maybe had never celebrated with such grandeur that they were, had done this time um, compared to the very very first time uh, which was uh, during the time of the Joshua also day by day from the first day until the last day he read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. So again, we see a transition that's happening now in this book, uh, in, in chapter uh, chapter 8, where the focus is going to be more on like the spiritual edification of the people. Now that the city is built, the temple is built, the wall is built, um, and, and so the purpose of all of that in the end was the salvation of the people, and that's why there's a greater emphasis now on that rather than on just the, the wall building itself, which at this point is, is already complete. Um, does anyone have any questions or comments before we conclude? Okay. Glory be to God forever. Amen. We can pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day, for every blessing that you give us. We thank you for the lessons that we learned from Nehemiah, your servants, and all the servants, O Lord, in your word. We thank you, O God, for his example and how he was able to sacrifice his own life in order to give to others. And we thank you, O Lord, for seeing how you have called your people back, O Lord, to your house to rebuild them, O God, and to revive their spirits. We ask, O God, for you to revive us and to make us to be a temple of your Holy Spirit and to grant us your will in all things. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation but deliver us from the evil one in Christ Jesus our Lord for thine is the kingdom power and the glory forever and ever amen the love of God the Father the grace of the only begotten Son our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ the communion the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all go in peace the peace of the Lord be with you all amen and also with your spirit